Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew Zetz, and in today's podcast for the National Council for the Social Studies, I'm going to discuss some primary sources from the National Archives that you can use to enhance your Reconstruction curriculum in the United States History classroom. I'm glad you tuned in, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. So I'm a teacher at Jenkintown Middle School High School in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, which is a small school just north of Philadelphia. As part of my teaching responsibilities, I instruct our 11th grade United States History course. In my class, I try to integrate as much primary source material as possible, whether it's music, video clips, radio programs, or more traditional text sources. I feel that primary sources have a certain authenticity and uniqueness about them that interest and engage students in a way that secondary and reference sources just can't. Additionally, by having students interact and interpret primary sources, they become involved in the historical process rather than just consumers of it. This summer, as part of my graduate program at Villanova University, I worked as an intern in the Education Department at the National Archives Philadelphia branch. My work was focused primarily on the early civil rights struggles of Reconstruction because of my work with the department's ongoing efforts in something called the Early Civil Rights Project, which is headed by Andrea Rydell. The project's main goals are to demonstrate that the struggles for civil rights in America have a much deeper history than just what transpired during the mid-20th century, and to focus on specific citizens' experiences, both successes and setbacks, in pushing for equality. Through my work, I found a handful of primary sources that are terrific teaching tools for Reconstruction, but there are two that are particularly well-suited for the classroom, as they help tell an incredible story from the period. The first document is Charles Sumner's 1873 proposal for the bill that would become the Civil Rights Act of 1875, and the other is a petition generated by a large group of black citizens from Atlanta in response to the debate over the bill. Together, they tell a story that includes topics like the struggle for change in America, the mechanics of democracy, and advocacy during Reconstruction. Before I get into the specifics of the documents and the ways in which you can implement them in your classroom, I first want to discuss the topic of teaching Reconstruction in broader terms. For me, teaching Reconstruction is difficult. By the time I begin my U.S. history course, which covers Reconstruction to today, it's been a little over two years since my students studied U.S. history, as they cover it from initial contact through the Civil War in 8th grade. So in one sense, It feels like I lack the inertia and context for the students to truly grasp the importance of Reconstruction. Even though I provide an abbreviated review of the U.S.'s founding principles, the critical moments in the colonies and early republics development, and the crisis of the Civil War, my Reconstruction unit never seems as firmly rooted in its context as it could be. On the other hand, it's difficult not to rush through Reconstruction, with the amount of time it takes to get the school year started going through introductions and classroom procedures, distributing textbooks, reviewing U.S. geography and history, commemorating 9-11, and taking time out of class for Constitution Day, I often feel the need to get through the Reconstruction Unit quickly so I can start making significant progress of the abundance of information that has to be covered over the course of the coming year. Through my internship work, I've encountered two articles that are incredibly helpful in rethinking and rediscovering the importance of Reconstruction, and have made me want to prioritize it in my instruction. The first is Rick Duringo's We Need the Lessons of Reconstruction, in which he discusses the need for Reconstruction to be incorporated in the high school curriculum. According to Duringo, Reconstruction is especially important because, quote, the expansion of democracy in this era paved the way, nearly 50 years later, 
for the democratic expansions of the progressive era and, 50 years after that, for the federal legislation of the modern civil rights movement. The changes began in Reconstruction, despite setbacks, continue to shape our ever-evolving notions of participatory citizenship, end quote. Instead of viewing Reconstruction as merely a stepping stone to Jim Crow, we can teach it in a way that contextualizes the contest over full American citizenship that endured into the succeeding generations. Studying the era in depth also demonstrates to students how the country can be reformed for the better, but how those changes can occur in a nonlinear fashion and often at a frustratingly slow pace. In the second article, Hannah Rosen's Teaching Race and Reconstruction from the Journal of the Civil War Era, she outlines how she teaches Reconstruction in her college classes. But before she provides her detailed approach, she explains why the era is paramount to the study of U.S. history. She claims that when Reconstruction's passed over quickly in an introductory or concluding lecture, the core structure, quote, runs the risk of reinforcing the general sense that Reconstruction was inconsequential and that the racism of Jim Crow was the inevitable replacement for slavery. By skipping the details of the battles waged during this period, battles over what it was going to mean to be free, battles that were deeply intertwined with the struggles over what it was going to mean to be white or black, battles that did lead eventually to Jim Crow, but not in a straight line, not with a guaranteed outcome, and also that continued beyond that point, course design can reinforce the notion of an unchanging and timeless racial prejudice determining history, end quote. As Rosen reminds us, it's not always appropriate to study history in a way that's refracted through its outcomes. Instead, by reading history as a forward motion, selecting a starting point and examining how things unfold, we can see how groups and individuals participated in shaping the outcomes, whether they were intended results or not. I highly suggest you read these two articles, which you can locate in the notes section on the podcast page. Finally, we get to the sources. The two documents I selected, both available on the National Archives' wonderful website, DocsTeach, help tell the story of the debate over the Civil Rights Act of 1875. The act was part of the Radical Republicans' legislative efforts to secure social equality for the newly freed black population. The act's quite remarkable as it tried to outlaw segregation in public facilities. Part of it reads, quote, that all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, public conveyances on land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement, subject only to the condition and limitations established by law, and applicable alike to citizens of every race and color, regardless of any previous condition of servitude. End quote. These were certainly revolutionary ideas, and this became a hotly contested piece of legislation. The first document can be located in Doc's Teach under the name Sumner Civil Rights Bill. The act that was eventually passed was a modified version of what you'll find, but the great part about Sumner's 1873 proposal is that you really get a sense of its ambition. For example, Even though it was eventually removed, the original proposal had a provision that would limit segregation in public schools. As this is a more traditional text source, and the vocabulary is not too difficult, students should feel confident engaging it, and it will serve as terrific practice for analyzing and annotating primary sources. The second source can be found on Doc's Teach under the name Memorial of the Colored People of Georgia in Favor of the Sumner Civil Rights Bill. A nice feature is that it takes us outside of Congress, away from the halls of power, and into the city streets of Atlanta, where we can locate the experience of the citizenry. The document's a response to the dramatic debate that transpired on the House floor. 
After 11,000 black citizens in Atlanta gathered to discuss the ongoing debate of the bill in the House, they developed a committee, which then drafted a petition and sent it to Congress. In the petition, the committee, having been spoken for by the likes of Alexander Stevens and the Georgia legislature, sought to set the record straight. They, the black citizens of Georgia, wanted the bill to pass. For me, these documents in this debate feature three main themes or concepts that can be helpful in deepening your Reconstruction curriculum. First, the debate raises questions about pardon and reconciliation in the post-war era. The central antagonist in the debate on the House floor was Alexander Stevens. As a former vice president of the Confederate States of America, the fact that he was in the United States Congress in 1873 is startling. By highlighting his presence and centrality in the debate, you can help your students appreciate what was at stake in Reconstruction when the federal government had to decide how the South would be reconciled to the Union. This debate provides a clear and dramatic portrait of the consequences of President Johnson's more lenient Reconstruction plan. Even if you don't teach this debate in depth, this is still an incredible fact to implement as you teach your students about the reconciliation process and the difficult political battles that had to be fought even after the bloody Civil War had ended. The second thread you can pull on from this debate in these documents is the agency of black citizens during Reconstruction, which is demonstrated both within and outside of Congress. The petition references a Mr. Elliott for whom the petitioners gave thanks for advocating for the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, as well as for, quote, vindicating the ability and patriotism of the colored citizens of this country, end quote. Elliott, a representative from South Carolina, masterfully responded to Stevens's speech the day after he delivered it and raised a voice not only for himself, but for the many African Americans not present to do so. Elliot not only challenged a white man, but he helped steer the trajectory of an imperiled country towards a more inclusive and democratic future. And Elliot wasn't alone. He was joined by six other African Americans in the 43rd Congress, each from a state south of the Mason-Dixon line. With the rise of violence against African Americans during Reconstruction, being public figures working to overturn the antebellum status quo made the representatives especially vulnerable to the attention and hostility of white citizens. Although the Enforcement Acts were passed in the early 1870s, there were still cultural hurdles to address. I think this is an important concept to explore with your students, the gaps between law and culture. Even when Reconstruction legislation worked to obtain and strengthen African Americans' claim and exercise of civil rights, there were still cultural boundaries that limited the rights of black citizens. Eventually, as state legislatures found ways to circumvent federal Reconstruction legislation and federal troops were removed from the South, the dissonance between laws and culture grew, all to the detriment of African Americans' equality. This is a great way to have students grapple with the complexities of legislation and change, and it serves as an important lesson, that even when progress is made in the form of legislation, it must be enforced, and that vigilance is a necessity because progress can be undone. The petitioners from Atlanta are a terrific example of citizens getting involved in the political process. There are a variety of ways your students can engage the document, but I definitely suggest you connect it with themes regarding the democratic process, civilian engagement, political rights, and the drastic change in the status of African Americans during Reconstruction. It's here that we find the greatest successes of the era. The Reconstruction Amendments and other pieces of legislation from the era that provided African American citizens the rights to engage in the political process and acknowledge their status as equal citizens under the law laid a foundation for the continued fight for and expansion of civil rights. Even when those rights were challenged and contracted, they provided legal reference points that helped continue the push for equality 
that continues today. This segues nicely into the third and final theme, the limitations of Reconstruction. In March of 1875, the Civil Rights Act became a law. At this point in Reconstruction, there were the makings of a revolution. With the Reconstruction Amendments, slavery was abolished, there was a broader and clearer definition of U.S. citizenship, and there was universal male suffrage. Federal troops occupied the South, and the Enforcement Acts helped suppress the KKK. There were African-American representatives at the federal and state levels, and although the resources were meager and sparsely distributed, the Freedmen's Bureau helped some African-Americans obtain the tools needed to begin their new life. Have students ponder these accomplishments. Consider holding a discussion with them about whether these achievements constitute a success. Ask them to make connections with specifics from Sumner's Civil Rights Act and the petition to inform their opinions. But afterwards, continue the story. Despite these achievements, the window of this outpouring of legislation did eventually close. Due to the Compromise of 1877, federal troops that helped enforce Reconstruction policies were removed from the South. For many historians, this marks the end of Reconstruction. Have your students consider why. You can use the petition as a concrete way to illustrate the impact of the troops' removal. What do you think it meant to the African-American citizens of Atlanta who gathered in public to raise a collective political voice? How do you think this changed things in the halls of Congress? You can also have your students question whether 1877 should serve as the end point of Reconstruction. Remind them of the legislation passed during the era that lived on beyond this year. When the Supreme Court declared the Civil Rights Act of 1875 unconstitutional in 1883, it contributed in dismantling the progress Reconstruction made. The essence of the 8-to-1 decision was that while Congress could regulate state laws for prejudice, it lacked the authority to do so in cases of discrimination between private individuals, businesses, and organizations. This was a strong foreshadowing of the separate but equal precedent that would emerge in the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case. These developments naturally lend themselves to a student discussion, or even an essay prompt or journal entry, about whether or not students think Reconstruction was a success or failure. I've done this in the past, and I think it's a complex debate that warrants your students' attention. However, due to my work in this internship, I think I may now have students engage the topic differently. Rather than assessing the outcome... I think the life of the Civil Rights Act of 1875 is a prime example of how the mechanisms of our polity operate as it teaches students about the process of judicial review. In the 1883 ruling, the Supreme Court made a sobering decision to overturn the progress made towards greater equality. The power to overturn laws is a critical feature of our government that our students should be familiar with. By contextualizing its impact with the complex debate, the specific laws, interesting characters, and the hopes of countless Americans, students may make deeper connections with this judicial concept than if they simply read its definition in a textbook glossary. In many ways, I think we're living in a renewed age of political activism. On January 24, 2017, James Pindell of the Boston Globe published an article in reference to the activism going on today, entitled, Welcome to America's Golden Age of Political Activism. He writes, quote, But what's different about this age is the sheer number of people involved. There are three reasons why this is happening. An increasingly polarized population, technology that easily disseminates information and fosters organization, and a national political system that is essentially broken, including a Congress that doesn't pass many meaningful laws. He also explains that this activism is not exclusive to one political party. Our students are being raised in a world in which they receive a barrage of information and, because of communication technology, 
have an endless number of ways in which to respond to it. If we want our students to understand and appreciate the political battles that are being fought over civil rights and liberties today, they need to have examples from history to learn from. Studying the debate, passage, and nullification of the Civil Rights Act of 1875 serves not only as a means to enlighten students' understanding of Reconstruction, but also to illuminate the social and political legacies they have inherited and to create civically engaged students. Alright, before wrapping up, we'll take a quick break, and when we return, I'll provide some specific activities you can use to implement the National Archives documents in your classroom. final section, I'm going to give you three activities that you can use or modify for your own instruction. I know I've mentioned some discussion ideas so far, but I wanted to give you some in-depth activities you can use in your class that ask students to read the sources deeply. The first activity is a congressional debate simulation that has students assume the role of representatives debating the passage of Sumner Civil Rights Bill. I would do this activity after you've discussed the ratification of the three Reconstruction Amendments and Radical Reconstruction. Ideally, this could serve as an illustration of the decline of Reconstruction. While the bill's passage fits in with Radical Reconstruction, its eventual nullification signifies the limitations and dwindling of the era. First, have students read Sumner's Civil Rights Proposal from 1873. I suggest you have your students read the document the night before the debate for homework. As a warm-up activity for the next day in class, have a question or prompt that reviews the document with the students and has them demonstrate a basic understanding of it. Something like, what was Sumner's main goal in his legislation, and how do you think it was received by the rest of Congress? Then, provide some contextual information about the debate in the House of Representatives and tell the class they will engage in the same debate. Break the class up into groups that represent the different political party allegiances and agendas of the Congress that debated Sumner's proposal in 1874. I've provided a brief description of each party's interests that inform their stance on the bill, which you can access in the notes section on the podcast page. In terms of numbers of students in each group, the Democrats composed about 33% of the House, and the Republicans composed about 67% of the House. You can use these statistics to determine the group proportions for your class. Within the Republican Party, there will be three different factions. The radical Republicans who are adamant about the bill's passage, moderate Republicans who are willing to support the bill, and the liberal Republicans who are not very supportive of it, as they thought it was time to move on from Reconstruction. You should assign the majority of the students in the Republican group to be moderates, a handful of the students to be radical Republicans, and one or two students to be liberal Republicans. Distribute the party description sheets to each student and explain that they'll assume their assigned perspective based on the provided description for the entire debate. Allow individual groups and subgroups to congregate and have a discussion about what their stance on the proposal should be. Circulate the classroom during these discussions so you can monitor students' ideas and be there if groups need assistance. For the Democratic group, you should emphasize what's at stake in the legislation. 
And for the Republicans, you should emphasize the divided opinions within the group. Tell students they'll get an individual participation grade for the debate based on the following rubric. Zero points, no participation in the debate, either in small group or whole class settings, or comments don't reflect their assigned point of view. Six points, there's little participation in the debate. The comments and contributions reflect the assigned viewpoint, but not in a significant way. For example, if a student just says something like, yes, I think the bill should pass. And then 10 points. Ample participation that reflects the assigned perspective and is informed by class lecture and readings. Finally, open the floor to have a debate about the bill. I recommend that students reference the group description handout so they can better grasp the opposition's viewpoint. This will help them make their arguments more persuasive. At the end of the debate, the entire class will cast their votes, which will determine the fate of the bill. The second activity is intended to engage your visual learners as well as your creative writers. I would use it as part of your discussion of radical reconstruction, the Republican South, or the new rights of African American citizens. For homework, have students read Charles Sumner's Civil Rights Bill and the Memorial of the Colored People of Georgia in favor of the Sumner Civil Rights Bill petition. As you assign the reading, tell students that the bill was hotly contested and the petition was part of the debate over it. When students arrive in class, have them complete the following warm-up activity. At the top of a piece of paper, students should summarize the intent and content of Sumner's proposal. Beneath this, students should write a brief timeline of the events described in the petition. Once students have done this independently, have them share their answers in order to complete an example for the entire class. Once you review this information, they'll be ready for the assignment. Have students create a graphic narrative that illustrates the events, people, and legislation described in the documents. Because a document offers such rich perspective and imagery, a more in-depth assignment, one that requires a page or two of panels, allows for students to synthesize the entire story depicted in the petition. You can make this an independent assignment or, because not all students are thrilled about the artistic or visual features of assignments like this, you can make it a collaborative assignment in which one student bears greater responsibility for the text and narrative and the other one is more responsible for the artwork. The third and final idea for implementing these documents is writing-focused. It would be best to teach us as part of, but towards the end of, radical reconstruction, the transformation of the post-war South, or the legislative victories of reconstruction, depending on how you structure your unit. Have students read Sumner's bill and the memorial of the colored people of Georgia in favor of the Sumner Civil Rights Bill petition. Then they should write two newspaper articles reporting and reacting to the petition submitted by the black citizens of Atlanta, one from the perspective of a supportive newspaper and another from the perspective of a critical newspaper. Each article should contain at least three quotations, a combination from the two documents, to which the journalist should react. Students can use different quotes for each article or the same three, which may make it interesting to see how each perspective treats the same quotes differently. Not only does this assignment have students reading and analyzing primary sources as well as writing, it also asks them to consider differing viewpoints, all of which align with core standards. Alright, well that's all I have for you today. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, please feel free to contact me. My information is on the podcast page.